The following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. Turn me, if you would, to John chapter 21, and we're going to start in verse 12. And while you're turning there, uh, as you see on the screen, the title for tonight is Raised to Love. And uh, we get to talk about Jesus rising from the dead, which of exciting topics, I think, rises all the way to the top of the list. And uh, I can't wait. So chapter 21 is the last chapter in the book of John, and it is filled entirely with accounts of Jesus after the resurrection. Uh, So Jesus has already lived a life of complete obedience to God. He then uh, submitted himself to some of the most gruesome torture that evil minds of men uh, ever conjured. And then died upon the cross as our substitute and savior. Uh, He was wrapped in a burial shroud and placed in a borrowed tomb. The Roman seal was placed upon it and Roman guards were placed in front of it to ensure that no frauds would try to steal his body. They placed two guards because they didn't want someone to come along from the outside and overpower just one guard by himself. But friends, here's the thing about that. They weren't ready. They didn't know. They didn't understand what they were up against. They didn't understand that if they'd have put a thousand guards out there, the end result was going to be the exact same. Those guards were going to end up laying prostrate on the ground, shaking like dead men, because the power of God was going to arrive the third day and raise Christ from the dead. Woo! They should have brought more guards, just so there was more witnesses. They weren't ready. They didn't know what was going on. They know now, though. Amen. So that's where we find ourselves, okay? Uh, Leading right up to verse 12 where we're going to start. Peter and the boys are out fishing in the beginning of the chapter. Uh, They're not catching anything. Uh, They don't recognize Jesus at first, but then then he comes along right around daybreak, and um, he's on the shore, and he tells them to throw their net out one more time. So they'd been fishing all night, didn't catch anything. Jesus shows up. They don't recognize him at first. And, and he says, well, throw, throw the net out one more time. Uh, and they catch so many fish that they're struggling to haul it in. And so at this point, the light bulb goes off, and they realize that it's Jesus. Uh, kind, of, kind of a funny situation happens next. Peter uh, throws on all the clothes he had taken off for work and ditches the other guys that are supposed to be bringing the boat back in, and he just starts you know, dog paddling and swimming towards Jesus. Peter's kind of an impulsive guy, if you've read the Gospels. Uh, kind of gets the cart before the horse sometimes, but... Um, you got to give him style points, right? Um, the brother had passion. So he ditches everybody, jumps in the water, swims towards the Lord. Uh, by the time everyone gets to shore, Jesus had already started a fire, and he was cooking breakfast for his disciples. Okay, So the Lord of glory, the guy that just defeated death, hell, and the grave, is cooking breakfast. What a God. You know what I mean? What a king. What a savior. Woo! All right. Okay, so where are we? I'm supposed to open my Bible while I was doing all that, and... There's a good chance this will not be polished, folks. I just want you to know right now. (laughs) Yes, sir. I'm excited. Okay. We're in verse 12, and uh, we're going to read to verse 17, okay? So I just gave you the up till then, and here we go. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples ventured to question him. I suppose not. Uh, Who are you? Knowing that it was the Lord, Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to him, and the fish likewise. This is now the third time that Jesus was manifested to uh, the disciples after he was raised from the dead. 
so when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, he said to him tend my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, shepherd my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he'd said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, and tend my sheep. Amen. Uh, first off, I think it's interesting that um, Jesus is so gracious here as to give uh, Peter a threefold chance uh, at public restoration after his threefold denial um, just a few days before. Um, so the title of tonight's sermon is, We Are Raised to Love. I want to read this uh, portion of scripture. I, I didn't give it to the folks back there on purpose. Just, just listen to this. This is Romans 6, 8 through 11. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, but we've been made alive to God in Christ Jesus. The question is, why? The first answer is from kind of an eternal lens, and it is, it is the whole point of the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation. Why is it that we've been raised to life? Why is it that we've been raised to join in the resurrection power of Christ? Why is it that we've been given this, this incredible privilege by the grace of God to receive God's forgiveness by grace through faith? Why all of that? God has redeemed us because he loves us and he desires for us to worship him in unhindered joy and perfect peace for eternity. Amen? Amen. Amen. That's kind of from the eternal lens. We must see, however, that our redemption is not only for eternity. It has a purpose in the here and now. Why has God raised us up from the miry clay? Why has he gone to such great lengths to save us redeem us, to give sight to our blind eyes, to bind up our wounds, and to deliver us from bondage. Why has he raised us up with Christ? We have been raised to love. This is the apex of our responsibility and our response. God has loved us so magnificently in Christ that we should be overcome with love and affection for him. Before, when we were slave to sin, we were not capable of loving God as he deserves. But because Jesus burst forth from the tomb that day, defeating sin and death, we are now free to love our God and Father. When we love God this way, as a response to him loving us perfectly and first, it has a direct effect on the way we live. This is what I want to draw out of uh, specifically 15 through 17. We see Jesus ask three times, do you love me? And then we see him say a variant of the same thing three times. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, I love you. Then care for my people. Then love my people. Then tend my sheep. 
don't think this is by accident. I think this ties very neatly into the overarching narrative of what the rest of the scriptures would tell us the responsibility is of those who have come to the knowledge of salvation by grace through faith. I think it's also interesting, I think sometimes we, we, we see this and we see this charge from Jesus to Peter and, and because we understand the larger context, I think we might read something into this that isn't necessarily here. We know that Peter was listed first among the disciples in, in, in most every place that their names are listed. Uh, we, we know that he, to some degree, was a part of that inner three of closest disciples and confidants of King Jesus. So he, he was charged with leadership among even the leaders that Jesus had called. Uh, and so to some degree, we can read this and see this as just a communication between Jesus and Peter and somehow specific. But I think it's very interesting that Jesus doesn't say to Peter, Peter, are you the leader of the disciples? He doesn't say, uh, Peter, are you uh, called to ministry? He doesn't say, Peter, are you called to be a pastor? Are you, are you an, he doesn't say, Peter, are you an apostle? Even though Peter was all those things, what did Jesus ask him? What did, he, what did he want to know the answer to? What was the question? Do you love me? Peter, do you love me? That's what he wanted to know. I think it's very interesting that that's the question, and then, and then he ties this, this, it's almost like two plus two equals four, and, and it's that Jesus does this repetition thing on purpose. Do you love me? And love my people. Simon, do you love me? Then love my people. And so we see here this direct connection. As, as, as sure and solid as two plus two always equals four, if, you're, if you love Jesus, you're called to love his people. We are raised to love. It's interesting, um, this is just kind of an aside. Some people think this, uh, in the first time that Jesus asks if he loves him, he says, do you love me more than these? Uh, I always assumed that he was talking about the other disciples sitting there. Uh, there's, there's a fairly large group of commentators and theologians that think it's equally possible Jesus was referencing the fish they just pulled up on land. Do you love me more than these? Signifying, do you love me more than the tradition of your father's business? Do you love me more than the security of what you know? Are you still willing to follow me with all that's transpired? Do you love me more than these? I don't know that we'll have an answer to that, but it's an interesting thing to think about. And, and just as plausible, really. Uh, there is a direct connection being made here by the risen Lord Jesus. My question is, do you see it, friends? Jesus asks three times, do you love me? And then immediately reveals what should be the automatic implication of that love. He says, do you love me? Then love and care for my people. And this is the call to all of us, friends. And so, we need to understand that wrapped together, this, this ties back also to the greatest commandment. If you've been here more than five minutes, you've heard something like this, but the, the problem is, I, I'm just so convinced that this is kind of the key to what all of the scriptures are calling us to, that, that, that for us to revisit this and think about it different ways and see all of the implications of how it affects the way we live and interact with other people, it's something that we need to constantly be reminded of because there is this this constant and aggressive counter-narrative that is telling us Loving Jesus doesn't mean anything about what you're going to do with other people. You, you got this you and God thing, and it's just it's a personal relationship. I mean, to some degree, yeah, but there, you cannot discouple this idea of loving Jesus, and thus it automatically 
having an implication of loving his people. And you see it in the fact that when Jesus is asked, teacher, we want the greatest commandment. Okay, we're going to acknowledge that you have wisdom. Tell us from your perspective, what is it that's most important? Give us the, the most important commandment. What does Jesus do? Does he give him a commandment? No, he gives him two. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. He never pulls those apart. Why? I don't think he can. I think we see it here again in his discussion with Peter. Do you love me? I love my sheep. Peter, this is what I've taught you. This is what I drug you around in the wilderness and the desert for three years ministering to people. This is why I let you see me be moved with compassion upon the needs of the people over and over again. We weren't in some high and lofty ministry separated you know, upon a mountain preaching platitudes down to them. We got down into the mess and we loved the people. And that is what I wanted you to see in walking with me. If you love me the way I love the Father then we're going to love these people. And that's what I'm calling to you. That's what I've trained you for. And now I'm releasing you and charging you to do it. And every single one of us that has been connected to Christ by grace through faith, every single one of us is charged with that same command. If we love Jesus, we have to love his people. This brings up huge questions. This, makes us, this should make us care a whole lot about what exactly is Jesus talking about when he says to love God and love people, right? So that's why we do a lot of work around here trying to come from the scriptures and define from God's perspective what love is because we don't want to think, I mean, if, this, if Jesus himself is asked, teacher, what is the greatest commandment? And he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, then we ought to, as people who say that we follow him, right? We are Christians, if we are disciples of Christ, if all of what we're doing hinges upon the fact that this guy burst forth out of the tomb so many Easter's ago, then we ought to understand what it is he is talking about when he says, love God and love people, right? And we see it throughout the scriptures. We see that 1 John 3, 16, in, in working towards pointing us to a definition of what love is, it tells us to set our gaze and our eyes upon the beautiful cross of Christ. You want to understand what love is, friends? If we are raised to love, then what are we raised to? What are we called to? What is the commission of Jesus Christ to his people? And how do we figure it out? Well, we look at the cross. What's happening there? We see perfect, sinless, wonderful Jesus sacrificing absolutely everything in the most beautiful display of selfless love in all of history. And so what do we see? We see somebody giving up everything for the sake of others. We see somebody willing to sacrifice everything for the sake of others. We see love personified in the cross of Christ. And that's why we have to keep our eyes set upon the cross. That's why we can't ever get away from it. That's why the gospel has to be center focus in all that we do all the time and all we think about. And every single time we open these scriptures, we've got to be looking for the gospel because it is the point of all of it. That's why we're here today, friends. Without the gospel, there's no, there's no point. There is no church. There is no Christianity. There is no hope for eternity. But thankfully, there is a gospel. And it's worthy of being focused on. Jesus died so we can live. He loved first so we can love. He gave everything so that we can too. We are blessed to be a blessing. You might be sitting there and thinking, yeah, I hear that. I hear what you're saying. I've listened. But it doesn't motivate me to love, give, or be a blessing to others. And you may be asking why. And, and that, that question could come from several motivations. 
um, I'm going to assume the best in you and assume that at least to some degree you're, you're acknowledging the, the logic of what's been said thus far, but you're also being honest enough to say that I, I don't, yeah, I, I hear it, but it's not, it's not doing anything in my heart. And so um, I'm going to give you some ideas about why that might be the case, and you need to try to hear it as somebody speaking the truth and love to you as, somebody, as opposed to somebody trying to jump on you because it's still Easter and I'm wearing pastel and everybody's happy, right? <laughs> Woo, it's Resurrection Day, all right? Here comes the punch. Entitlement is a disease that breeds in the stagnant waters of pride. It is possible for many people to hear of Jesus' great love for them, his sacrificial death on their behalf, and his triumphant victory through resurrecting from the dead and not be moved. They can hear of the most incredible love that has ever existed being displayed by the sacrifice of Christ on the cross, and they can shrug with indifference. The question is, how? Entitlement tells the average person that they deserve this love. They come to assume that it was God's reasonable service to pay the ultimate price for rebels and wretches. And this is why we need the bad news as much as we need the good news. That's why every single time we preach the gospel here, we have to let everybody know that from the jump, none of us in any way whatsoever have deserved the grace and mercy of Christ. Every single one of us left to our own were blind and dead in our sins. We were slaves to our sinful nature. And our eternal destination was separation from God. Every single one of us aside from Christ is in serious trouble. And it absolutely, in no way, was God, um, did God have to do what he's done through Christ. We were in no way entitled to the grace and mercy of the cross. It is only because of his incredible love, and, and that's what mercy is, right? It's, it's undeserved, right? Justice is you get what you did. Mercy is somebody steps in and says, well, let's, let's not do exactly what they deserve. And uh, that's what we see happening. Um, and we need to understand that if, I, I just want to throw out a caution to you, friends. There, there, there may be a lot of different people in the room today. I know there's people visiting for various reasons. First of all, I need you to hear this and, and, and do your best to believe me. Um, because of what Christ has done in my heart and because of how much I believe his incredible, perfect love for me, I, I genuinely love you and care for your soul. And so nothing that I'm saying is to, is, is to come at you sideways or, or, or be overly aggressive. Here's, here's what I'm hoping to do. I'm hoping to get you to think about eternity. I'm hoping to get you to think about something other than, the, than, than what constantly you're being barraged with, kind of the, the trivial uh, trappings of this life. And, and at the end of the day, if, if you can hear everything I've said, if you can hear uh, somebody describe um, the, the beauty of the cross of Christ and, and the, the perfect love of God for you, the mercy that is displayed uh, in the gospel and not be moved. Um, you, you may be a few different people here. Maybe you've just you've been around so long that you've heard it so many times it's kind of become a dull, a dull din to you. It's just, it, it's, it's something, yeah, 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 I get that. But it, here, here's, here's what I want to say to you. If, if you have got to the point, whether it's from doubt, um, maybe you never have believed or, 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 or you've believed at one time or you thought you did, the bottom line, folks, is if you can hear this right here, that you were dead in your sins. The Bible's very clear that every single one of us is imperfect. Every single one of us is in need of a Savior. That God is holy and perfect and just in every way. That he created us, put us in a place where we, we had holiness, perfection, and connection to him. 
We chose to sin. Every single one of us is a sinner by nature and choice. Every single one of us, because of our imperfection, it has a, a separation between us and the God that makes us, made us. Okay, So without Christ, that's the place where each of us sits. And if you can hear that bad news and then hear the good news, that that's where we were and that's what we deserved, but that God went beyond and above anything that was required of him, that he sent Jesus to come and live a perfect life and then die in our place for our sins, and then rise from the grave triumphant over sin and death and allow us to take part in his victory, not by following and doing exactly what he did, not by somehow becoming perfect, but simply by believing by faith in what he did. If you can hear that, what I just said, and not to some degree be moved, please shake yourself. Please wake up. Please shake the dust off of whatever has settled over your heart and understand. You have just heard the most profound and beautiful good news that any human ear could ever hear. And if something of gratitude does not leap on the inside of you to hear the basic, beautiful gospel of Christ, then I'm asking you to fall on your knees and ask God to help you. Break down whatever wall's been created. Shake off whatever dust has settled. Because we cannot get to the place where the gospel is some common thing for us that no longer brings us to a place of incredible gratitude that causes us to want to worship the God who is the author of that gospel. Please, friends. Please. And let that be a continuous call to us to assess ourselves. We should not be able to even mentally go through the, the, the details of the gospel without joy and gratitude swelling in our hearts. And it is that constant reminding ourselves of that gospel that fuels the ability for us to go into a world that says, do you, get yours, forget everybody else, to go into a world like that, constantly declaring that message, get what's yours, make sure you and yours got it, make sure you take care of yourself. The basic survival instinct that is a part of our sinful nature that causes us to not care what everyone else needs and do everything we can to hedge our bets so that we don't ever have anything that looks something similar to discomfort. The only way we can fight against those tendencies that try to choke out the implications of the fact that God loves us and that we should love him in return is to think upon the gospel, to think upon the sacrifice of Christ, see selflessness in its most beautiful form, and then follow after it. Out of gratitude and love conjured from that beautiful image, out of that beautiful story, understanding the truth of what Jesus has done, it's the only chance we have to go into a world that says selfishness is right and say, no, it's not. To live in such a way that would declare the gospel to every single person we encounter. The love of God is our best hope for reaching the world. The love of God is our best hope for reaching the world. John 13, 34-35 says this. This is Jesus speaking. He says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all men... Hear me, friends. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for the other. Friends, there's a whole lot of ways that we try to program and systematize this, this thing we call uh, evangelism and missions. And, and listen, I, I understand we need to organize stuff and we need plans and sometimes, you know, sitting down and putting strategies together, all of that is needed. But at the end of the day, if we do not understand 
If all of our strategies and all of our plans and all of our efforts are not fueled completely and totally by the love of God, they will fail miserably. This is Jesus speaking, king of glory, the guy that conquered the tomb, right? Everyone with me? That's, that's the guy we're talking about. These, this is his words. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another even as I have loved you. Are you listening? How has Jesus loved us? Perfectly. Completely sacrificially. This is his call to us. Now, are we going to do that perfectly? No. Some days you're going to be a selfish brat and you're going to think about you. For sure. But thank God the book of 1 John says when we do that and we realize it, that we have this awesome invitation to come and repent and that he's faithful and just to forgive us. He's, he's willing to be patient with us and long-suffering and, and bring us along on this journey of sanctification, coming closer and closer, hopefully, to his character and likeness the longer we walk with him. So he says, love one another even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. Don't you, don't you love when Jesus repeats himself? That's fun, isn't it? Well, maybe he didn't mean, oh, he said it again. <laughs> okay, right? <laughs> All right, so then, then, when then he says a real big statement. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love one for the other. Friends, do you see it? Have you made the connection yet? Do you understand how this works? How is it that us loving each other like Jesus has loved each of us, if I love you the way Jesus has loved me, what does that have to do with declaring Christ to the world and declaring that we belong to him? Well, just think about it. What is the world outside like? What is it like at your workplace? What is it like in most places, in, in, in most schools, in most uh, organizations? What, is, is most of human interaction fueled by selfless sacrifice and love for one another? Is most, is what's going on here fueled by, hey, what, you know what? I, I want to do whatever's best for you and not necessarily what's best for me. Believing that if other people also do that same thing, then ultimately I'll, I'll be taken care of. Is that the way it works out there most of the time? Okay, it's not a trick question. The answer is no. <laughs> I know it's intimidating to answer in a big group. What if I'm wrong? No, that was simple, okay? <laughs> no, the answer is no, okay? That's not how it typically goes. And so, if, if all of that self-focus and all of that nastiness and all of that kind of I'm going to get mine attitude and all of that I'm looking out for me and mine, if that was represented by darkness, then, then, then you know, there's, there's, a, there's a fun little song that we used to sing uh, back in the day, it was, it was about holding a little light and it being mine, and I'm not going to sing it for you, but it's, when you go into these places, man, and you're willing to love like Jesus, it stands in stark contrast to what everyone else is doing. And when we love one another selflessly and sacrificially as a reflection of the way that Jesus has loved us, it will stand out in the world. And so that's why we take care of each other. That's why we talk in terms of this being the family of God. That's why we talk in terms of if somebody amongst us has a need, guess what? We all have a need. That's why we talk in terms of if somebody amongst us is suffering, guess what? We're all suffering. That's why we talk in terms of when, when we stand up here and people are dedicating children to the Lord, guess what? To some degree, we're all dedicating children to the Lord. When we have births, we all rejoice. When we have deaths, we all mourn. We are together in this, and the fact that we are tied together and bound together by the blood of Christ and the love that pours forth from his cross and from his empty tomb, it declares to the world that there is something real here. 
that we're not a social club. We don't get together. This is not something we do weekly to satiate our conscience so that we can go out from here and feel better about ourselves. There is something that has affected us to the very core of our existence, and it causes us to do something different than the rest of humanity. And that different thing is following our master, our king, our savior. His name is Jesus. He said, friends, if you love one another like I've loved you, the world's going to notice. And so I present to you this premise, our best shot at making a dent for the gospel in this world is to first and foremost focus on being people of love. Lots of other stuff we need to do, but all the other stuff we need to do needs to be fueled by that first thing. Got to get first things first, friends. Have to. The call to love extends beyond the family of God. So we could have thought we got off easy. Now, some of you are already thinking about the people, you know, even in here that you're like, oh, man, it's going to be really hard for me to love them like Jesus has loved me. So you were already kind of struggling. Now I'm going to make it even harder, okay? So you're welcome. Happy Easter. (laughs) The call to love extends beyond the family of God, okay? In Luke 10, this should be familiar to you to some degree, um, even if you've not been in, in church, you've probably heard this story. Uh, Luke 10, a lawyer stands up and he says to Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Uh, and Jesus, in, in classic Jesus fashion, throws him a question and says, uh, well, what do, you, what do you think? And, and so the lawyer answers and he says, um, well, I believe it's... It, I have to uh, love the Lord, Lord my God with all my heart, soul, and mind, love my neighbor as myself. And Jesus says, you've answered well. Good job. So that's, that's a good exchange for the lawyer, right? One for the lawyer. Good job. Like, Jesus threw you a question back. You answered it right. Thumbs up. Uh, but then we see the lawyer's true intentions start to come out because he asks another question. If he had just shut up, he could have went down as like, you know, a two-line hero in Luke. Good job, lawyer. <laughs> Got questioned by Jesus. You did it, bro. Like, like went in jeopardy. Um, but he didn't. He asked another question. Because the second part is love your neighbors yourself. And so he goes, who's my neighbor? Jesus then, also in classic Jesus fashion, tells a parable. You know what parable he tells? The Good Samaritan. The Good Samaritan goes something like this. There's a guy that got robbed, busted up. He's left in a ditch, all bloodied. Um some high and pious so-called religious people walk by. They walk large circles around him, don't even look at him, don't want to get down in the filth with him. Then along comes this Samaritan guy, a guy that those religious people would have despised as some lesser form, um, had a lot of issues with, you know, uh, there was racial issues and all kinds of stuff that these guys would have felt superior to him. This Samaritan stops, gets off his beast, gets down, lifts the guy up, Gets his blood all over him, does whatever it takes, drags him up there, puts him on his animal. He walks, takes him to the inn, takes out his money, pays the innkeeper to take care of him, binds up the guy's wounds, um, leaves extra money so that the guy can stay there and says, when I come back, if I still owe something, I'll pay more. Just, I want to make sure you take care of this guy. So Jesus tells that parable, and uh, then he asked the lawyer, he said, so who, who was a neighbor to, uh, who was a neighbor to that guy? Was it the religious folks? Or was it the guy that sacrificed and paid a high price in order to help him? 
And uh, we see from that parable that there was no geographic connection. As a matter of fact, those guys were from two very different places geographically. Uh, So Jesus defines the neighbor for us. It's everybody. It's who we come in contact with. And so to some degree, we see the, the sovereignty of God's design, and we need to understand that when we walk by people every day, much of the time that's not by chance. And so by God's help and through the help of his Holy Spirit, we need to have discernment and understand um, when is it that it'd be right for us to be in less of a hurry and paying more attention uh, to those around us. Asking God to help us to love those around us the way he has loved us. And so it's not just that we love each other, take care of each other, stick up for each other, um, throw in our lot together to complete the mission of God together and, and, and love each other in that way here in, in the house of God and amongst the family of God, we are also called to reflect the love that God has given us <clears throat> to every single person that we have the opportunity to encounter. And friends, we need to understand, um, you know, to some degree, in every parable, you got to ask yourself, and, and I don't know if we always even pay attention you know, to, to whom do you relate in the parable? Where do you go as far as where you place yourself in it, right? Um, <clears throat> and to some degree, some of us at times have been the religious people that walk around. Surely to some degree, sometimes uh, we've been the Samaritan. But when it comes to us and God, there, there is gospel reflections in this, in this good Samaritan parable. Um, when it comes to us and God, we were the bleeding man on the side of the road. Make no mistake, when it comes to eternal things, when it comes to the, the place that our, uh, our, our spiritual man was in, um, we, were the, we were the bleeding, dying man on the side of the road, completely helpless, in need of grace and mercy. And Jesus came, and he bound up our wounds, and he cared for us at his own expense. And he's now called us to do the same for others. Jesus Christ defeated death and raised us up from the grave. And those who have trusted this by faith have been raised up with him. We have not been raised simply to enjoy the abundant life that God provides, but we have been raised to love God, and it is impossible to love him without also loving people. Now maybe you're here today and you're not sure. Maybe you have doubts about the validity of this resurrection account. I get that. I realize there's a lot of people out there pushing information that, that would say that none of this is, is worthy to be trusted. Um, and I want to speak quickly. To, I want to speak the truth and love to you if that's where you find yourself today as, a, as somebody that's in doubt. And please, again, understand as how, however you would be prone to take this, please take it as a guy that desperately cares for your eternity. I don't care if you even believe there is an eternity. Just understand where I'm coming from. If that's you, let's say, let's say you're in a place where you, know, you, you believe that I'm just a dumb hillbilly for even believing that there's something after this life. Well, just then take me as a dumb hillbilly, but take me as a dumb hillbilly that loves you and is desperately pleading with you to speak the truth in love. I'm just asking you to give me that hearing, okay? I want to I take a step back just for a moment because... I think to some degree to try to talk about the details of the resurrection, I need to say this first. I read something recently. I made a mistake. Any of you guys ever um, click into a post that's got like 200 comments and start reading? Don't do it, man. Nobody, ain't nobody got time for that. 
okay? <laughs> Nobody does. But I did that recently. And it was a discussion. Um, you could tell this guy was a, was a professional troll because he had like memes for days, right? So this conversation's going on about is God real, this and that, and he's just, you know, he'd make a comment, boom, he's got this meme, and there's no way he was in it. He's got this stuff like saved in a file somewhere. He can just throw, you know, so he's a, obviously a, a troll for the devil, I guess. Um, and maybe they all are, I don't know. So anyways, um, this guy's doubting God's existence, and here's one of the comments that struck me. <clears throat> He said, if God were real, he wouldn't play hide-and-seek with us like this, saying that God, you know, that, well, what's, what's faith? Why does it have to be by faith? Why can't God, essentially what he's saying, why can't God make it more obvious? Why is it that we have to, you need faith? Why do you have to believe? Um, he's saying, why, God, if God was real, he wouldn't play hide-and-seek with us like this. He would do something obvious so that we would know he exists. What, what, what is all this about? And... <clears throat> Um, I, I didn't, I didn't comment, stayed out of it, because I, I had enough discernment to understand that it wasn't going to be helpful in that context. However, I did log that, and I thought about it, and I, I realized I, it took me longer to fall asleep because of how upset it made me at that premise. Well, if God was real, he wouldn't play hide and seek with us. He would, <clears throat> he'd do something obvious so that we'd know, and I'm thinking, are you kidding me? He came and walked among us as a man. He healed blind eyes. He fed thousands of people with the equivalent of a Hebrew Lunchable. He healed leprosy. He called men up out of the grave three days after they died. He then himself, being perfect, carries his own cross to his own execution allows himself to be crucified for the sins of all mankind, and then rises from the grave. What do you mean God would do something more obvious to let us know that he's real? Their problem is they're just mad he didn't do it now. But that's like saying, well, I can't believe the Egyptians built the pyramids. If they'd have built the pyramids, they should have done it now. Man, there is a huge monument sticking up out of the desert declaring the Egyptians built the pyramids. And I'm saying, friend, look at the church. Look at 2,000 years of history. Look at people today whose lives are in shambles. There are monuments standing up throughout the landscape declaring the glory of God. What do you mean he'd do something more obvious? He hasn't played hide and seek. He's given us this word, man. A pyramid, forget a pyramid, the truth and the wisdom and the beauty and the reality of what these scriptures say has, has shown forth and not been able to be, uh, not been able to, to, to be proved untrue for as long as people have been trying to do it. And that's since they've existed. Don't tell me God needs to do something more obvious. I would say coming to earth, walking amongst as a man, doing a ton of miracles, dying and then rising again, and then giving us his perfect word, I, that doesn't sound like hide and seek to me. Not to mention Romans 1 tells us, just for a second, even if your eyes are blinded by disbelief, would you please just for a second look at what he's created and tell me this is an accident. Friends, I, 
I'm excited about Easter, okay, so I'm not yelling at you. <laughs> okay, so f- forgive me if that's how that felt. I'm just, trying to, I'm just trying to say, please, don't stay away from Jesus because some, some dude on YouTube told you, well, God wouldn't play hide and seek if he was real. Guys, come on. He, he's done something obvious. The question is not, has God done enough for us to believe him? That is not the question. Here's the question. Will you believe him? That's what it comes down to. Will you look at all the evidence? Will you not take the first escape hatch that comes so that you can avoid the implications of an almighty God who not only made us but then orders our steps? Will you actually look at all of the evidence? Will you look at the fact that Jesus started out with 12 dudes that were total cowards, that every single one of them ended up... If you go back to John, uh, starting in verse 18, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he's he's speaking to Peter, When you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands, and someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. Now this, he said, signifying by what kind of death he would glorify God. Jesus told Peter, You're going to end up dying over me. And he did. This is denied Jesus three times Peter. Okay? Ends up being crucified upside down, refusing to recant that he saw the risen Lord. Go down the list, friends. Every single one of them saved John, ended up dying a martyr's death over this. And the only reason that John didn't die a martyr's death is because the boiling oil didn't kill him. You got to look at this. What makes a man like Paul, who was on team kill Christians, all of a sudden become Team, I'm willing to die for Christ. And let's say you just you can't get over the fact that you haven't seen something uh, in front of your own eyes. Well, I, I just want to say to you that that's foolish because you believe a lot of things that you haven't seen in front of your own eyes. I love you, but please don't live your life like that. But secondly, if you need something in front of your own eyes, please take a look right here at this guy. Because I was a broken man headed for hell. Statistically, everything I had going against me, y'all, I shouldn't even be breathing today, much less standing up here trying to tell you you should be excited about Easter. I'm telling you right now, you want, you want to see evidence of the grace of God. You want to see evidence of the fact that God is real and changes lives in a real and profound way. That he goes in and does stuff in the heart in a way that nobody else can. I'm just asking you to look at, look at me standing here. I promise you. And if, you, if, if this isn't enough, then come talk to me. I, I will give you the details so that you can see. And, and I would challenge you, if you're in that place today, stop somebody in here. Because most of these people in here have a story of brokenness that would blow your mind. And they can tell you, in no uncertain terms, exactly why it is today they have hope in this life and for eternity. It's because of Christ. It's because he's real. It's because his love is profound and it's transforming. He's worthy to be worshipped, friends. He's not hidden himself away from us. If you look, if you look, he's made himself very clear, very obvious. May we be a people who embrace the truth that we have been raised to love. May we be a people who love so fiercely and with such abandon that those outside the family of God are forced to, t- to take notice. And may we love the world around us in response to how much we have been loved by Jesus for his glory and our good. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you in the name of Jesus. We love you. <clears throat> Lord God, we thank you. We thank you for all of the evidence that points to the fact that exactly what you've said is true. That you were the Son of God. That you are the Messiah. 
Thank you that even though you submitted yourself to a torturous death on the cross on our behalf, that three days later, exactly what you said would happen did. That the power of God brought you back from death, that death was conquered, that you stood upon the neck of our enemies, sin and death, and that triumphant victory was yours. And God, I am thankful you didn't stop there, but now you've extended an invitation to each and every one of us to partake and rejoice in that victory. Thank you that you knew we couldn't do the work. You knew we couldn't defeat sin and death on our own. You knew that we could not we could not fix or build the bridge back that separated us from you. That's why you came and laid across that gulf. I thank you that you love us so much. You were willing to take all the risk, that you did all the work, that you did everything necessary so that we, weak, frail, enslaved to our own propensities and tendencies, our own sinful preferences, that you could come and set us free. Thank you for the truth of the gospel. I thank you that you not only died so that we may know life, but that you raised to life and that you've raised us with you. And I thank you you didn't just raise us so that we could have a happy club and enjoy it ourselves, but that you have raised us and instantly by raising us up, by bringing us with you, by loving us so well, you have given us an anointing and a commission to love others. You have raised us to love. Thank you that the only way it's possible for us to love anybody or even understand what that means is to first understand and contemplate your great love for us. May the beauty of the cross forever draw our gaze. May we never be distracted by the trappings of this world. May we not get distracted looking to the right and to the left, but may we forever and always be enthralled and in awe of the beauty of your cross. May we never, ever believe that we need to somehow graduate on to greater things. May we understand that there is Nothing deeper, more beautiful, or more powerful than the truth found in the beauty of the cross. Thank you that the gospel is true. I thank you that even though none of us is deserving, you saw fit to extend mercy to us. God, please, please help us by your spirit. We are prone to forget. We are prone to get wrapped up in the details of our own coming and going. We are prone to let our focus and attention and affection be set upon other things. But we're asking today for your help. Lord, we have sat underneath the teaching of your word, and God, we are convicted to our core. We believe that the right response to what you've done is to lay our lives down as a living sacrifice, to first love you and to love others. And we believe, God, that's going to cost us everything, but we see it as the right response to what you've done. But we need your help because we're going to go from here and we're going to, the loud voices are going to start again, the counter-narrative telling us constantly the exact opposite. And so we're asking for the help of your Holy Spirit. May we set our eyes upon you. May our hearts and our focus be set. May our face set like flint. May we decide that long obedience in the same direction, fulfilling the call that you've placed upon us, is the only possible way that we're willing to live. And God, we ask that you would be glorified as we walk that out. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give or find out more about Love City Church, visit 
www.mylovecitychurch.org.